Welcome to the Renaissance Christian Church Podcast. We're a church family with the mission of seeking God, serving others, and sharing the gospel. We're grateful that you have joined us as we study through the Bible, and we hope that it brings you encouragement and inspiration for your daily life. Here's Pastor Jared Saavedra. So thank you guys again for joining. Um, We are in John chapter 12 this morning, and I'm going to turn there myself. You can pick up your Bible that you have in front of you on your couch or wherever you are, and uh, I encourage you to have a physical Bible. You're at home very likely, and you have a physical Bible available, and so we're going to read from God's Word today, and we're going to study something that's um, very, uh, it's a very familiar story. It's something called Palm Sunday. I mean, we're celebrating Palm Sunday today, and it's a church holiday. It's something that's been on the calendar for, you know, thousands and thousands of years, but it's not exactly completely understood. We understand the events that happened on Palm Sunday, but it's like something that, it's one of those events that is best understood using the other events that take that took place later in the week. And so that's what we're going to look at today, that God um, has a specific thing to show us with the story of Palm Sunday, as we see in John chapter 12. There's a certain dimension to which I wish I could have been at this event, at at Palm Sunday, at Christ's triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. I kind of wish I would have been able to, you know, feel the dust underneath my sandals, that I would have been able to be one of those people in the crowds um, uh, shaking the the palm leaves and saying, Hosanna, you know, glory to God and save now, Lord, as Christ himself rode on a donkey into the gates of Jerusalem to be a part of that crowd. But as we see in this chapter, as we will see in this chapter, those people in the crowd didn't exactly have the best um, understanding of what the events uh, of the events that were actually happening at the time of Jesus's arrival into Jerusalem. And in fact, John's gospel tells us that we have the better understanding than those present at the um, triumphal entry did of the actual events that were taking place of understanding fully of what was going on in that way. It's sort of like watching something, but not fully understanding the significance of what's going on. We might be able to think of um, certain ceremonial events in our society. We might think of the uh, something like a, a presidential inauguration, where, where certain ceremonial events um, take place that we don't exactly understand unless we know more about what's going on. Or we think maybe think of a, a baseball game or something like that, in which certain events are taking place. And we see that there's people moving around in the outfield and we see the coaches, you know, touching his face and stuff like that. I guess we're not supposed to be touching our face right now. So that's why I'm being careful. But the coach is touching his face and you under, you start to understand there's something else going on. There's another level of understanding that I'm kind of missing while watching this. Well, that was kind of true with the case of Palm Sunday. So why don't we dive into the chapter and read what's going on right here. So we're going to read in John chapter 12, starting in verse uh, 12. We read this. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. 
So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And so what's the story right here? What's the backdrop of, of uh, this occasion? Well, Jesus is arriving in Jerusalem. And Jesus had been to Jerusalem before, but these circumstances were different because Jesus was arriving at the height of his popularity and also during just before and anticipating the Feast of the Passover, which is probably the biggest Jewish feast of the time. And as you can see from the reactions of the crowds and what was going on, we see that the crowds, everyone had a different perspective and opinion of what was going on. We see one crowd followed him from the previous town because they had seen him do, perform this amazing miracle that we would read about in John chapter 11, that Jesus rose, um, Jesus brought Lazarus, his friend, back from the dead. He was already buried in the tomb for a few days and Jesus brought him back. So that crowd was following him for that event. But we see there's another crowd who is already worshiping in Jerusalem that had been out there to meet him because they heard rumors of what was going on. And then, of course, there are the Pharisees who react to the popularity with a sort of envy and jealousy because they understand that Jesus is a rival for their ambitions toward power. And so there's a lot of things happening here. And we uh, scholars believe that it, probably at least one million people had gone to Jerusalem and were in Jerusalem during this time. So there's a lot of reactions, there's a lot of crowds, but there wasn't a lot of understanding. You can see in the midst of all this, even Jesus's closest companions, the disciples, John says, the, the writer of this gospel says that his disciples did not even understand what was going on at first and only understood it when Jesus was glorified. And so we're actually looking at this passage, we're actually going to focus on a smaller, um, less popular passage, maybe following this, in which we get to understand what it means that Jesus was going to be glorified, and how that enhances and helps our understanding of these events of the triumphal entry of Palm Sunday, and how those events are best interpreted by the events that are going um, on later in the week. That is Jesus's suffering, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so we understand these events better in this latter part of the chapter. And it's in this latter part of the chapter we're looking at today um, where Jesus unfolds to his disciples that while the crowd was paving his way to Jerusalem with their cloaks and with their palm branches, that Jesus was looking toward a very different looking path of glory. He was on a very different road to glory and what it means to be glorified. And Jesus not only is going there, but he's inviting his disciples to follow him. And so look at, let's look at the following passage, starting picking up in, in verse 20 right here to focus what exactly should we understand about this event in relation to things. 
Jesus gives us better understanding right here in John chapter 12, verse 20, if you'll continue reading with me at home. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So it wasn't the crowds or the Pharisees or even the disciples that occasioned Jesus to open up about the true nature of these events and the true nature of why he was coming to Jerusalem in the first place. But it was actually the arrival of a certain group of Greeks. Now, these were non-Jews. These were not ethnic Jews who were coming to worship at a Jewish festival. And evidently, they were interested in this king of the Jews that they heard about coming to Jerusalem. We don't know how many Greeks there were, but we know they wanted to see Jesus and they wanted to get to Jesus through some way. We don't know how accessible Jesus was, but they maybe wanted a mediator to um, introduce them to Jesus. And so they went to um, they went to Philip and then Philip and Andrew kind of acted as mediators and said to Jesus, hey, these Greeks want to talk to you which seems like a really good opportunity for Jesus to minister to someone. But what follows and how Jesus reacts is a little bit bizarre. It's a little bit jarring to the reader, especially as we're reading this narrative and we're thinking, what is Jesus talking about? We see that Jesus does not address the Greeks directly, but he actually enters into some kind of a discourse that we will have to unpack. And that's what we're going to do in this message. So Jesus answers them and he says, the hour has come. For the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's in these words that we get a glimpse of what was going on in Christ's mind during his arrival to Jerusalem. The crowd was waving palm trees, you know, a little bit before this. The 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 crowd was lauding him and asking them, asking him to, you know, rule over them virtually, and they were celebrating the fact that he was a king. And they they saw it. It seems just as the prophecy foretold, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So that seemed to be the way they understood it. And yet, in this, all these circumstances, Jesus' mind seems to be on a very specific task. He's talking about the Son of Man to be glorified. And it's in this situation where Jesus makes clear his mind to the disciples. But we have to understand what what exactly does it mean to be glorified? When we think of the word glory, we might think of the glory of an athlete or something on a on a uh, sports field or something. Sports field sounds like I don't know anything about sports. But let's say like the glory of a football player or a quarterback winning the the Super Bowl. That's glory. You know, they're, they're glorying in their victory. Or we might think 
glory as someone distinguishing themselves on a battlefield. They've neutralized the enemy, they've overcome, and they've declared victory. So glory is a kind of honor or distinction. But when we're talking more specifically about the glory of God, we're really talking about God's inherent attributes. We're talking about God's intrinsic majesty, his intrinsic beauty. We might say that God only ever lives in a perpetual state of victory and triumph. That's what it means when we're talking about the manifested and radiant glory of God. And in God's case, being glorified is not an attribute that he gains. Remember, God is unchangeable. What he has been and what is what he will always be. So God's not gaining glory, and that's not what Jesus is talking about. But when God, when Jesus is say, talking about being glorified, he's talking about revealing his glory and emanating his glory. And how exactly does Jesus plan to do that? Well, Jesus gives us a word picture, a metaphor for how that's about to be done. In verse 24, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus being emphatic. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. What is Jesus's word picture for himself? He likens himself to a seed, a seed that unless it's planted in the ground and dies, will never become anything else. Jesus is not talking about the fact that, oh, you know, I'm a failure and I'm not going to become anything else. But he's actually talking about the, the purpose and the role in which he came to earth. He came as a as the uh, redeemer and as the Lamb of God to die on our behalf and to forgive sins. This was the plan all along, and Jesus has been explicit throughout his ministry on this is the plan. This is the mission. In Mark chapter ten, verse forty-five, Jesus says, "For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many." That's Mark chapter 10, verse 45. And so we understand this is what Jesus is talking about when he's talking about glorification, but it's kind of against and outside of what we would normally understand as glorification. We think of glorification as fame and power and money and victory on the sport, on the, on the battlefield or on the sports field, you know, but Jesus's suffering actually is glorious. And this is what Jesus is telling us and telling his disciples at the time to be perfectly clear. He says, my, I'm going to suffer and die, but it will be a glorious suffering. You might ask, Jared, how is that exact? How is Jesus's suffering glorious? It seems very humbling and it seems to be something that's really undesirable of someone we might think of as a king, of someone powerful, of someone who has authority. I'm going to give you three reasons why the suffering of Jesus is glorious. Because these are the true circumstances under which Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to suffer and die. So number one, why is Jesus's uh, suffering glorious? The suffering of Jesus is glorious because it accomplishes God's perfect will. And this is why God sent his son to the world to suffer and die for sins. And it's glorious because God's will is perfect and everything that fulfills and um, acts toward that will is a glorious thing. If you look later in John chapter 12, you just drop down a few verses. Verse 27 says, now is my soul troubled. This is Jesus still talking. And he says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. 
But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. This is God the Father actually speaking back to Jesus. He says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So this is Jesus saying, this is my whole purpose is to fulfill the will of God. And so if Jesus is doing this, accomplishing this by suffering, then that's a glorious suffering. Secondly, Jesus' suffering is glorious because it accomplishes our salvation. The work that it's doing itself is glorious. It's amazing. And Jesus is accomplishing what he sets out to do. In prophecies from hundreds of years before, in the, in the book of Isaiah, in the prophet Isaiah, we read in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Theologians call the suffering of Jesus, they call it salvific, meaning that it accomplishes salvation. That this is the way in which God's accomplishing saving us from our sins. So when Jesus is suffering, he's accomplishing a work. It's not meaningless. So this is what Jesus is doing. But lastly and thirdly, Jesus' suffering is glorious because he is ultimately victorious. In victory, he will rise again from the dead. And it's the victory that Christ brings us that is the victory we can celebrate as Christians. I hope you realize that Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem was maybe a high point from a human perspective. They might think, oh, Jesus is at the height of his fame right here. But Jesus is saying, no, that my path to glory is actually an even higher glory of perpetual victory. If you look in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, verse 14, we see this. Paul is speaking. And he says, thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. God's will for us is to believe on Christ, to be forgiven of our sins and to forever be rejoicing and forever to be in a state of triumph and victory forever. You know, I'm, I've been in mourning lately because baseball season was supposed to start on March 27th. And obviously with the coronavirus, it's been canceled. But MLD, MLB did a, did a great thing where they were broadcasting old baseball games. And um, I'm a Pirates fan. So, you know, the older the game is, the more likely it's, it's going to be a good game. And they were rebroadcasting the Pirates uh, wildcard victory against the Reds from 2013. And I had it in the background and I was watching it and um, just reliving those nine innings was amazing for me. I had experienced it, you know, seven years before, but reliving that kind of glory, reliving that victory when they finally, you know, closed the game down and what Jason Grilly, I think was the closer or something. And I was like, yes, yes, that's amazing. And that feeling of victory kind of flowed through me right there. How much more than that, that, you know, ridiculous, you know, one-time victory, postseason victory, how much more is the glory we get to partake in and revel in as God's children when we are partaking in the eventual victory of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection? We are guaranteed so much joy and so much victory in life. We're just perpetually winning as Christians. We're perpetually in triumph. And that's what Paul is saying, that 
you know, there's a one-time triumph when Christ arrived to Jerusalem. But for the Christian, for the believer, our whole entire life is a triumphal procession because God has overcome death and he's conquered um, the grave. And so Jesus was rightly celebrated on Palm Sunday. He deserved to be praised and to be lauded, but he was not fully understood. But we understand from this this short um, understanding of what Jesus' glory is that Jesus is not dismissing the Greeks right here, but he's actually telling the Greeks um, in, a, in an indirect way and telling all of us how we can participate in the glory of Christ and how we can have fellowship with Christ when we believe on him and when we follow him. And Jesus on the, on the topic of following him starts to transition into the way in which his disciples can follow him into this path of glory and the way in which we can partake in this perpetual victory of Christ's eventual conquering of the grave and of death eternally. And so verses 25 and 26 tell us the way to follow Jesus to victory. Verse 25 says this, Jesus starts to, he, he talks about his glory. He makes these truths. He, he uh, spreads these truths, and then he tells the disciples a way to apply them to their own life, on their own paths to following him. Verse 25 says this, Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Um, the what Jesus is talking about to the disciples is the thank you, is the path that the disciples can take to glory. And so Jesus's mission right here is not only our salvation that we can kind of see on afar in a, in a doctrinal theological way, but it's also practical. It's it's we can apply it this theology to our own lives. So Jesus is not only our salvation in suffering, but he is our example in suffering. The path that Jesus wants the disciples to take and is inviting them on, however, leads automatically to death. And he basically says, whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. It's basically following him on a path to suffering and a path to death. And there is no other way that Jesus gives to follow him. He has a high standard for those who would follow him and those who, who must follow him, that it's a, it's a path, path of hardship, self-denial, and suffering. In fact, Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, uh, the Apostle Peter tells us explicitly that this is the lot of the Christian, the lot of anyone who wants to follow Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, Peter says this, To this you have been called. This is your calling in life, Christian, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ is our example in suffering. And if our leader is enduring this thing, how much more should we think that we'll eventually endure some sort of suffering? Following Jesus, Jesus is saying right here, requires great cost. It's very costly to us. But understand that Jesus is not just looking for martyrs, for people to follow him merely into death and to die for some political or ideological cause. He's 
asking us to die to ourselves. He's asking us not to, you know, give ourselves, give our bodies over just to be martyrs instantly. But he's actually asking something that's a lot harder, which is to die to ourselves and to live for him every single day. God asks uh, God asks the disciples and by extension us to leave our pride, our sin, our amb- our personal ambitions to make ourselves great, deny ourselves in that way, which the Bible tells us is a sort of death, and follow Jesus in through His example. And so elsewhere you'll see it in Scripture as dying to yourself. The Apostle Paul he's describing his life as a Christian. And he's describing the struggles he endures through persecution, through suffering, through self-denial. And he's speaking figuratively figuratively in this way. And he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I die every day because of the struggle he has to follow Christ. And there are many who under ordinary circumstances would say, look what Jesus is asking. Look what he's asking of the people to follow him. Doesn't he have a good marketer? Doesn't he have a better way to um, invite people into his life? Doesn't he want followers? He's telling them to deny themselves, to pick up their cross and follow him. He's telling them to hate his own life in order to follow him. And it doesn't seem appealing to you. After all, I mean, if you have a nice job, if you live in a comfortable house, if you make uh, good money, and you have a great family, you might think, why would I need this suffering into my life to, to, you know, gain something or get what Jesus is giving me? You might be thinking, oh, that's, that's the suffering of Christian life. Maybe that's just the really hyper-religious spiritual thing. It's not my thing. It's not exactly my thing. But it's times like these when national crisis hits and we're being locked into our houses and we're told to social distance and it's times like these that we start to think about eternity and to think about the fact that this life is fleeting and that what Jesus is actually asking us to do is nothing at all because it's going to go away. We're going to lose our money. We can't take it with us after the grave. Our our bodies are going to break down And everything we thought we had gained in life, we'll eventually lose. It'll slip through our hands. Look at the value that Jesus is offering to you for basically nothing at that point. For things that you're going to lose anyway. Your possessions, your life, your your very body. And he's saying, give those to me. They're better in my hands than in yours. But look what we get in return. Verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. But look at this promise. Where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. During this time when you realize that nothing's guaranteed, there's really no, maybe there's no safety net for you, and you realize this is all there is? Is this really all there is? Then you start to realize the value of what Jesus is giving you. Not that the currency of what Christ offers us from eternity has changed. Not that the value of that has changed, but our perspective on what's really valuable has changed. When you realize that the very life you have is a gift from God, and that the suffering of Jesus, 
that Jesus was about to endure in this story was the once and for all payment to redeem sinners like you and like me, then you realize the exceeding amount of comfort in suffering, especially that Christ offers you when he tells us these words. And so what is exactly is the believer's path to glory that Jesus is instructing his disciples to take in this time? Well, there's really two things that we should note from this text about our path to glory. Number one, in following Jesus, we know that our lives are more secure in his hands than in our own. Jesus was looking toward a path that led him through suffering. And he was asking his disciples to follow him in this way. And it was really just an, uh, an ask of trust to ask the disciples to say, hey, give your life to me. I'm going to suffer and die. Look how I endure this and look how I conquer it. Follow me and your life will be in my hands and I'll protect you. I'll conquer death for you and I'll even give you eternal life if you give your life over to me. So we have that promise right there that our lives are more secure in his hands than in our own. But secondly, in following Jesus, we have fellowship with him and honor from the Father. Observe what Jesus is promising there. He says that his servants will be with him in fellowship. We will have Christ and the Holy Spirit as our companion in suffering, even in this present life, that we can go through life and we can go through national crises like we are in this time, and we can expect that we will not be alone. We will not suffer pointlessly and that Christ will be with us and the Holy Spirit will abide in us, promising us the, the hope of glory that we have in the future. And not only that, the fellowship that we have with God is with the triune God. We have fellowship with the Son. We have fellowship with the Holy Spirit who's in us and helping us to work through these things. But also we have fellowship with the Father who gives us honor and who honors us in this time. We receive glory from the Father, as Jesus says um, in verse 26. He's talking about the, the Father honoring the servants. And how does God do this? Well, he does, does that by not only making us servants in the household of God and letting us have that privilege to be able to um, have fellowship with God in that way. But John chapter one tells us that God is honoring us by not only making us servants, but by adopting us as sons and daughters. That's a huge honor that we can, if you will, take God's last name and therefore inherit the riches of his grace, mercy, partake in his glory and revel in the victory that he's accomplishing. Just like me sitting on the couch watching that Pirates game and, and celebrating that victory, even though I did not a single thing for that, that, that team. In the same way, we can look at what Christ is accomplishing in our life and we can say Christ did everything, but I get to dwell in the victory. I get to have the victory. Just like we saw from, from Pastor Robert last week in, in Romans chapter 8, where he says we are more than conquerors. We're really co-conquerors with Christ because he did all the conquering, but we get all the victory. We get dwell and feel that victory. And so to, to wind down and to conclude of, to conclude what this text is telling us, it's that this, if there's one thing you guys should remember about Palm Sunday, it's that even though the crowds prepared the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem, 
Jesus here prepares here and meanwhile prepares the path to glory and prepares the path for us to victory and conquering death. Many of those present, as you saw at the arrival of Jesus, really missed what was going on because they misunderstood the purpose of Christ's coming. They thought he was going to be a ruler. They thought he was going to be a ruler that was going to rule with the sword or a political ruler or a military ruler. But no, that's what that's not what was going on. Jesus was coming to suffer and die and to pay for the true problem in our lives, which is the sin that separates us from God. It was J.C. Ryle who said, the kingdom that he came to set up was to begin with the crucifixion and not with the coronation. Its glory was to take its rise, not from victories won by the sword, but from the death of its king. And so for us today, there's a few things that we can take away in application for our lives, reading this passage and what it means to us. Number one, we can conclude that as believers and for Christians, no suffering is final. Isn't that a great promise? Isn't that a great promise, especially as we look toward the next couple weeks and we see uh, news broadcasts that are telling us, hey, the next couple weeks are going to be really bad. And we're thinking, man, if the professionals are telling us this, then, you know, this is really anxiety inducing. And I think the the scary level that we're experiencing in, in, in many ways here in America is this the uncertainty of, will this end? Well, through scripture, we have the promise that our suffering will end. Our bodies will may decay and will die. But we have the promise of the resurrection because Jesus accomplished that work on our behalf. Even if our bodies decay, we have this promise about um, our bodies to be resurrected from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 43. He talks about our bodies dying, but he says it is sown like a seed. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. So for the Christian, no suffering is final, and that should be comforting to us all. But secondly, to apply to our lives today, we should recognize that God honors his servants. I'm sure it was a great temptation for the disciples to see this honor that Jesus was getting in Jerusalem and say, man, we're really on the way up. Like this is, this is our peak. Like it, it's only up from here. And then for what Jesus was doing in the trajectory of his life to say, well, what are you doing? You're going to suffer and die. Why would you ever do that? We're on the, tra- we're on the upper trajectory. Because the disciples might be seeking a different honor, the honor that comes from man, the honor that comes from crowds and what people think of them. But we should recognize that the honor which God gives is the only honor which matters because God is the whole arbiter of righteousness and the the only perfect um, judge of truth. And that what he thinks of us and how he honors us at the end of our lives will conclude that that's the only thing that really matters. And thirdly, and, and to close, We should understand that Jesus invites you to himself. Notice just as Jesus was talking about his own suffering and death, he sees that as inseparable for how he is to be followed. So in this way, Jesus is going to suffer and die. But for us, it's an invitation for us to see the hope that we have in him 
and to follow him in that regard. Notice um, later in John chapter 12, if you drop down to verse 32, we see Jesus saying this, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Verse 33 says, He said this to show by, by what kind of death he was going to die. The way Jesus magnifies himself is not by raising himself up on an earthly throne to be an earthly ruler, but rather he raises himself up on the cross. And that's how he wants us to see him. And that's how he wants us to be magnified to us. That's how he wants us to recognize him. Because we have to understand that there is no way to God. There is no way for the forgiveness of our sins. And there is no hope for us unless we see the true son of God being sacrificed for our sins and atoning for our salvation. We have the hope of Christ. We have the hope of eternity. We have the hope of the resurrection because of the cross. And that's where Jesus is guiding our eye line. So let's pray as we close. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your triumphal entry and the power of your resurrection. Father, I pray for anyone who's watching here live or even Lord watching an archive later that they would recognize their need even in this struggling, in this uh, frightening and, and hard time, that they would recognize the, the need that they have for the hope of eternal life. That, Lord, what we have in this earth is fading, even our very bodies. But, Lord, through Christ, you give us a promise that we will have eternal life. And that, Lord, if we die, even now, we'll go to be in the presence of God. And that, Lord, even in the future, we have the hope of our very new resurrected bodies. And so, Lord, I ask that we would choose to live in victory, that we would choose to live in the, the conquering of Jesus over death, and that people would come to you even in this time and just say, Lord, I'm sorry for my sins. I believe on you, that you died for me and that you rose again from the dead. I ask that you would come into my life. And in Jesus' name, we all pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us in today's study. If you'd like to know more about us or where you can attend one of our services, you can find information online at www.ren.church. That's R-E-N dot church. Thanks for listening.